Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to the Chess Angle. With this episode, I'm starting a new category of content I'm calling the Game Analysis Series. These are generally going to be shorter, bite-sized episodes where I'm going to discuss one or more of my over-the-board games from the club and possibly other games I may observe as a tournament director. The idea is that this will allow me to present the practical application of a lot of the things I discuss in the main episodes. Basically, I'm going to break down my live OTB games thematically and really get into my thought process, the types of openings I faced, decisions I made at the board, how I handled certain opponents, all stuff like that. So basically, the podcast will have three tiers or categories of episodes. I don't know why I just said the word tiers. It makes me think of like uh, retirement tiers. Categories is probably a better word. But anyway, the default episode, which is how this podcast started, is my monologue or the solo episodes. Those are about 20 to 30 minutes-ish in length. Then we have our interview episodes, which naturally skew longer because I'm having a dialogue with another person, but I generally like to keep those about an hour at the most, maybe like 45 minutes to an hour or something like that. Once you get into an hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half, it gets to be a little much in my opinion. And I say that also as a podcast consumer, not just a host. And then finally, we'll have these game analysis episodes where again, I will discuss my games thematically, ideas, thoughts, concepts, psychological stuff. I'm not going to rattle off a long sequence of specific moves because for an audio podcast, that makes no sense. And these game analysis episodes will probably skew shorter, maybe in the 15 to 20 minute range. We'll have to see how it plays out. This is, of course, the first one I'm doing. So after three or four of these, I'll have a better idea. This particular episode might be a little longer because of this introduction, and also because I'm going to kick this game analysis series off by talking about three of my games. So ultimately, I think we now have a really nice mix of content. This is the plan for now. As you know, with any creative endeavor, I don't like to speak in absolutes, but I feel pretty good about this format. I'm also now dropping episodes weekly on Sundays rather than bi-weekly. Of course, if you have any thoughts, you can email me at info at thechessangle.com. Also, our Twitter handle is at LI Chess Club, so be sure to follow us if you're not already. We also have a Facebook group. Just look for Long Island Chess Club. It's a private group, so you have to click to join. I keep it that way to avoid spam and bots and all that other nonsense. So now, let's get to the games. For this first game... We're going to talk about playing lower-rated opponents because that's a big psychological thing. It's a big thing as far as rating. And I will say up front, as a tournament player, I do not like playing significantly lower-rated opponents. And I think many of you will probably agree, your return on investment is pretty poor. And the thing is, if you win, 
you're only looking at maybe three or four rating points. Literally, that's it, like three or four points if your opponent is rated several hundred points lower than you are. And if you lose, you're going to lose a ton of points. You could lose 25 to 30 points. If you draw, you're going to lose points, not as many, of course. But it's a lose-lose situation because, like I said, if you lose a draw, your rating's going to take a hit. And if you win, you only get a minuscule amount. And if your lower-rated opponent is really much stronger than his rating for whatever reason, that's a whole nother discussion. But anyway, if he's playing much stronger than his rating, it, it still doesn't matter if you fought really well and won the game. You're still only getting three points. So it's generally not that beneficial to your rating and... It's also not beneficial to your game in general because usually a much lower rated opponent is going to make mistakes. Most of the time, you're going to win fairly easily. And as far as chess growth, you're really not getting much out of it. You're going to learn much more playing people who are rated the same as you or really higher than you. So that's just something with tournaments that's inherent in the rating system and with lower rated players. And the other thing is, psychologically... I don't like playing lower rated players because I actually have a tougher time. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but I actually find it more difficult playing lower rated players than higher ones. Because if I play a higher rated player, you sort of have to psych yourself up to bring your A game. There's not that much pressure on you because you're expected to lose, quote unquote. And all the pressure is on the higher rated player because he certainly doesn't want to lose. And there's just something mentally where I'm able to sort of psych myself up more against a higher rated opponent. It shouldn't be that way. But when you play a lower rated opponent, you sometimes get into this mindset that the game's going to win itself and you have to be very careful. All right. It can be actually very treacherous playing lower rated opponents. Okay. So you don't want to get into a thing where you just see that he or she is rated three or 400 points lower than you are. And the game's going to win itself. Now, personally, in a five-round tournament, for example, right? Let's say it's five rounds. I would want to play the top five guys no matter how I do. Like, that's just me. Even if I go 0-5, that's actually going to increase my rating over the long term because I'm just going to learn so much from that. And you'd be surprised anyway because even higher-rated players make a lot of mistakes. And now with computers and databases, you can see that. You can put a game you played against a higher rated player into the computer and you'll see how many mistakes they made. But again, I would want to play in a tournament, like let's say it's five rounds, the top five guys, as I said, one, two, three, four, five, no matter how I do, because you're going to get the most benefit from that. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way and you're going to have to play lower rated players as well. So just some thoughts about that. Now, what I like about looking at individual games is that it's a good springboard for a variety of chess themes and topics. So we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit. So I was black in this game, and he opened with E4. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to give a whole series of complicated moves in an audio podcast, because that's going to be kind of tricky to process, but just some basics. So he played E4. I played E6, which is the French defense, which I believe is an excellent choice for amateurs against e4 because the French defense, it's very thematic as far as understanding the plans and the themes. It's fairly simple to process. When you get into 
E4, E5 openings, those open games, or E4, C5, which is the Sicilian defense, that gets really tricky. That's all theory. A lot of those openings, it's like another job, right? So if you're on LinkedIn, whatever you do, you're in manufacturing, you're in sales, you're in law, you could put that on your resume for LinkedIn, right? I work in sales, I'm a teacher, I'm a lawyer, and I play E5, or I play the Sicilian defense. Okay, obviously I'm just kind of joking around, but those openings are so complicated theoretically. There's so much you need to know, and they're very move order dependent, meaning you have to play a certain move at a certain time or you're already losing, whereas the French defense, for the most part, is not really like that. It's more thematic. There's a little more flexibility. I also find at the amateur level that a lot of players don't handle the French defense that well, or they only know it on a basic level. So just as a general statement, I've done very well with E6, the French defense. And I stopped playing. I was doing the Sicilian for a while when I first got into tournaments and I was getting crushed. Now, to be fair, maybe that's because I was also a weaker player when I started in tournaments, but I have so much experience now with the French defense and I'm so comfortable with it that for me to switch now would be, you know, kind of silly. But anyway, talking about openings in general, the idea, and I'm giving you a very basic overview, White wants to get in his two center pawns. He wants to get in E4 and D4, right? And every opening black plays either prevents that or counterattacks that. So so for example, when White plays E4, you're playing E5 if you play that type of opening to prevent D4 or to you know be able to take the pawn on D4, right? If you play C5, you're also controlling D4. So Black's opening after E4 is either to prevent or to counterattack the center, right? And that's what the French defense is. It's a counterattacking defense. You allow White to get in E4, and d4, but then you counterattack it. So after e4, e6, white plays d4, and then black plays d5. And he's counterattacking because after d5, white's e4 pawn is now under attack. All right. And that's your opening moves, the first two moves for the French defense. So white has a choice to make now. He can either push his pawn forward to the e5 square, which is the advance variation, which is what happened in this game. He can exchange it. If he trades pawns in the middle, that's the exchange variation. Very common at the club level, but at the highest level levels of chess, you're not going to see it because it's very drawish. Most GMs are not going to play the exchange variation because it really doesn't give white much and black equalizes pretty much instantly. And the third way to deal with the E4 pawn would be to defend it. That's what most titled players do. I mean, you'll see that at the club as well. But generally speaking, if two GMs are playing, you're usually going to see either knight c3 or knight d2 defending the e4 pawn. All right. But at the club level, the advance variation and the exchange variation are very, very common. A lot of players who aren't familiar with the French, they're not sure what to do. They usually go into the exchange variation just because we have a tendency to want to trade and release tension. Alex King talked about that in uh, the last episode that we did when I spoke with him. But anyway, in this episode, in, in this episode, in this game, that is, he 
push the pawn forward. He played the advanced variation. All right. So, and the idea is that white defends his pawn. He gains space and black is a little closed, but his position's fine. And now the reason I like the advanced variation is because black's plan is now very easy. You're going to aim at the D4 pawn, right? You're going to hit it with C5 right away, knight C6, queen B6. I won't get into like all sorts of moves and variations, but what I like about the advanced variation again is that Black's plan is very clear. It's not like, what do I do now? Also, Black can delay castling because the center is closed. Now, you may say, wait a minute, every book I read said you need to castle right away, right? That's good development. Yes, that's true if the center can open up. That's true in E4 and E5 openings, open games. But as with most French defense positions, the center is generally very closed, and your king is actually safe in the middle for quite some time. So black will usually castle, but there's no rush to do it. And in fact, in some cases, you got to be careful because the pushed pawn on e5 can lead white to an attack against your castled king. So black's immediate goal is to really attack d4. Okay, and we're talking about lower rated opponents. He played the beginning of the opening fairly well. But then what he did was he played g4, controlling the f5 square, because uh, usually black will get a knight there. Now, the idea of g4, that is a legitimate idea in the French, but the way our game went down, it didn't play out, and he had all sorts of weak squares. And that's really one of the other themes with low-rated players is that there's usually a lack of peace coordination and there's a lot of holes in weak squares. And that's basically how I ended up winning the game. I just had such active pieces. His pieces weren't active. And he had a lot of weak squares. And that was just because he really didn't understand the opening thematically. He was kind of just developing pieces without understanding where they go and what their purpose is. And I ended up getting a knight on the fifth rank. And his position, you know, it just kind of basically kind of fell apart. And I ended up with a winning endgame. All right. So that's very common with lower rated players. Just kind of wait them out. The worst thing you could do is try and force things. Like don't think, oh, he's lower rated. I need to crush him in, you know, 30 moves or less. No, you don't. Just play it out. And generally speaking, they're going to make a mistake at some point. Now it may not happen for a while. You know, you'd be surprised. They may play of, you know, most of the game pretty solidly. Uh, Tim Mirabile, I think, talked about that a little bit when I interviewed him. Because sometimes if they know the opening or if they understand, you know, certain basics, they, they may hang in there for a while. So don't think if your lower rated opponent is not making a mistake immediately that you need to panic. Sometimes it may take a while. Okay. In this game, he kind of fell apart as we approach the middle game. But other times you know, they may play, uh, you know, much longer. I mean, I've played opponents who rated, let's say a thousand and, you know, they weren't making any mistakes that you would expect from that. You know, if, if my opponents rated a thousand, I'm not talking about like a chess.com rating. If I'm playing in an over the board in-person tournament and my opponents rated a thousand, if within the first 20 moves, they're not dropping a piece or making major positional mistakes, or if they're not falling for basic tactical things, then my thought process is, okay, this person's definitely higher rated than a thousand. Cause you, you would expect that 
you wouldn't expect them to go 25, 30 moves in, rated a thousand and to play such good moves, but it happens. And sometimes you have to wait them out. But in this case, I didn't force anything. I just played my typical French advanced moves. And then he just fell apart. I guess he didn't know what to do. And then he weakened his squares. And then basically you just take advantage of his mistakes. I mean, and that's a common part of chess at the amateur level. It's really just waiting the opponent out uh, just to see who makes the, you know, the first major mistake. You know, a lot of people say that. A lot of people say, oh, you can get to 1,600, 1,700, 1,800 just by not making mistakes, right? That's sort of true. I mean, I think it's a little more than that because the players nowadays are much stronger, but it's something to think about. So that was the first game against a lower rated opponent. And now I'm going to discuss a somewhat embarrassing loss against a lower rated player that I played. And again, I'm not going to just discuss my wins because that would be kind of cheesy. I will discuss my losses as well. In fact, the game I'm going to discuss now is one of the most embarrassing losses I've had in a while. It happens. I guess I was due for one because I literally can't remember the last time I had a loss this bad, but I'll explain what happened in that game. All right. So my opponent was rated about 1400 for this game. And again, this is fairly recent. I'm I'm about maybe 1650 again. Okay. Still working my way back up from the slump. I mean, it had gone as low as like 1600. So we're heading in the right direction, but anyhow, this was also a French advance. So great. I love the opening, but what happened was I ended up getting my bishop trapped in the opening, which I'm just, I'm just laughing. I can't remember the last time I did that. And here's, let's talk about what happened. Then I'll tell you why I think I made this blunder. So basically he played the French defense a little unconventionally. And I have to remind myself, I'm always telling it to others, but you have to remind yourself as well, you know, cause I go through this too. I'm not giving any of these talks, like sitting on my high horse, right? I struggle with these things as well. When your opponent plays somewhat unconventionally, you really, really have to be careful because you can't sort of go on autopilot with your opening when your opponent plays unconventionally because it might allow him a move that you don't normally see, which is what happened here. And I made that mistake. Now, as a side note, this was the first round of the tournament. And remember, I'm also the director, so I direct and play, which can be distracting. Now, I am not going to just say, oh, well, that's why. I don't like to use that as an excuse, okay? There's a saying, excuses are the tools that breed incompetence. I'm not going to say, oh, well, maybe if I wasn't directing and maybe if it wasn't round one, because, you know, round one as a TD is always a lot of work because you have to collect the entry fees and do the pairings and you know, your head is kind of spinning when you start the game. I'm not going to get into that. Okay. I, you know, know what I accepted when I started the club, I knew I would be directing and playing and, and that's on me. So I'm not going to make excuses. Now, could that have had an effect? It can, but I don't like to lean on that because then, you know, that's just going to be an excuse and I need to fix the problem. So this was my mistake. I should not have made this, but the larger point is that when your opponent plays unconventionally, 
you really have to be careful because, you know, sort of some of these like trappy moves or maybe some tactical ideas that he has, those generally aren't there when the opening's played conventionally and you know what you're doing and it's book lines. But when he plays something a little different, you really have to double check yourself. And I didn't do that. I made the mistake of sort of playing on autopilot and I made this mistake. So basically what happened was, I'll just try to explain this. I know this is like audio only. It was a French advance and he captured, after I played C5, he captured my C5 pawn and I recaptured with the bishop, which was fine. But then what happened was I then developed, the blunder I made was I developed my knight on G8 to E7. I played knight E7. And then, of course, it always happens this way. About 10 seconds after I played it, I totally realized he can play B4 and hit my bishop on C5 and I have no escape squares. And normally the bishop, you know, would either, uh, you know, attack something, it can trade or you can move it back. But in this particular position, like normally the bishop wouldn't be developed there um, because normally I would take on D4 after he moves his knight to A3. I don't want to get into too much theory, but the point is after I recaptured with my bishop and then moved my knight, he was able to attack my bishop with his B4 pawn and I had no escape squares. So of course, right after I moved my knight, I'm like, oh my God, like I saw, and I knew, you know, you know, that look like, you know, he's going to see it like you're hoping. And I I knew he was going to find, of course, and he played it in like four seconds. And I ended up the only way out of it. I had to give up a piece for two pawns and the Queens were still on. So I said, all right, just compose yourself. You're going to have to make something happen. And it turns out I did fight back pretty gallantly. I actually won the piece back with a tactical thing. It was a fork, but, and I, I saw this through even when I did the tactic, I knew when I won the piece back that he was still better. It, it took me a while to just kind of see it in my head, but he still ended up winning because even after I won the piece back, his position and his pieces were so much better in the end game. We, we traded Queens and just without explaining individual moves, basically he he just had such an advantage positionally and attacking weaknesses that I couldn't get out of it. So he ended up winning the end game and just being up a piece earlier on gave him a better position in general. So I did try to fight back. I almost had a draw, but you know, he played well. But the point is, I made this mistake in the beginning because I went on autopilot in an opening against someone who was not playing conventionally and I should have double checked myself. All right. And I, I guess in in a way, maybe it's good to have a game like this once in a while because it kind of, you know, reminds you to have your guard up. But it happens. It was kind of a freak blunder. I don't want to say it's because I was directing and playing or I was distracted. It happens. But just thought I'd share that. So I think the main theme with that is that when your opponent plays unconventionally, you really, really need to be careful because there can be tactical things that don't allow you to play book moves the way you normally would. All right. And then what hurts about that is that that's like a 25 to 30 point rating hit. 
you know, I talked about that with Brian Karen. It's like you have that one bad game and boom, you know, 30 points. I'm not going to get that back in the same tournament. You know, that's just how it works. But it happens, and that's part of the rating system. You do get punished pretty severely when you lose to a lower-rated opponent. But it happens, and, you know, I was upset about that loss, but I just I just shook it off. I said, look, just, it happens. You know, just get it back and do what you need to do to move on. All right, so moving on, the third game I'm going to discuss is against a higher-rated opponent. Now, this game was from a while back. All right, I was in the 1800s when I played this. My opponent was rated high 1900s. He was almost an expert, maybe 1990. So a higher rated opponent, not that much higher rated, maybe you know 150 points or so, but higher rated nonetheless. This was a draw that I had against him. And let me kind of set this up to explain what happened. Now, before I get to the actual game, Let's talk about playing higher rated opponents in general. All right. The first thing that I like about playing higher rated opponents is that regardless of the result, you're going to have a good game to study and review. So whether you win, lose, or draw, studying those games with a computer is going to be invaluable. It's going to help you in the long term. So playing higher rated players is what you want as far as a growth perspective. So that's very important. And the other thing I like about playing higher rated players as a tournament player is that you get what they call draw odds. So it's kind of like a win-win-win situation. What do I mean by that? If you beat a higher rated player, you get a ton of rating points. It might be like 20 to 30 points, something like that, maybe even more. All right. But if you draw right? As opposed to playing a lower rated player, if you draw a higher rated opponent, you still get a decent chunk of rating points. You may get like 10 to 15 points, something like that for drawing, which is, you know, a nice amount. And if you lose, your rating doesn't take much of a hit. So I was about 1800-ish. He was high 1900s. Maybe I would have lost 10 to 12 points, maybe something like that around there, maybe a little more, but it wouldn't be like 30 points or 25 points. All right. And if your opponent is significantly higher rated, so if I, if I were 1800 and he was like 2100, you know, maybe you'll lose eight points or something like that, you know, whatever it is, I don't know the exact numbers, but that's why playing higher rated opponents is so great from a number standpoint. You get rating points. If you win, you get rating points. If you draw, and if you lose, you know, it's barely a, a trim off your rating. You know, it's just like a small amount. It's negligible. So it's all beneficial. That's why, in general, I think most tournament players like to play up rather than, you know, play someone lower rated. So that's something to keep in mind. Now, as far as your attitude towards a higher rated opponent, I think Jeremy Silman. I am Jeremy Silman, who you know is my favorite chess writer and chess instructor. He says it very well. He talks about it being a win for the rating system. And what he means by that is so many times a lower rated player will face the higher rated player with fear and the moves come slowly. You're a little hesitant and you're losing the game simply because you're looking at his rating 
and you think every single move he plays is amazing and you become very tentative in your moves and you end up losing because it was really psychological the whole time. But as you know, as any tournament player can tell you, and I, I can definitely tell you this from doing it, when I put games I've had against higher rated opponents into the computer, you'd be amazed how many mistakes they're making. And the way that I drew this game was that I had that attitude. Like he would make a move and my thing was, was you know, I'm not sure I believe you. And, and I need to, you know, show that this move is wrong. I'll explain what I mean in a minute when we get to the actual game, but you don't want to take what I think it was GM Jesse Cry, who's excellent. I think that's how you say his last name. I saw him or heard him say something about, you know, you don't want to take a crouch position when you face a higher rated opponent, like, oh, please, please don't beat me up. And I think one of the things uh, Jesse Cry was talking about was that a lot of players nowadays, they don't take a crouch position when they play higher rated opponents. And that's true. You don't want to be obsequious. All right. There's a $2 word for you. You don't want to have this like, oh, you're so higher rated. You know, I respect that. And I'm going to be afraid of every move you make. You can't play that way. Your attitude has to be, okay, you're higher rated than I am. And you're supposed to be able to prove it. Okay. You, you need to show it to me. Okay. I'm going to play a good game. If I lose, I lose, but I'm not going to just roll over and kiss your ring. You know, I'm going to play to win. And like I said, if you lose the game, you lose the game, but you'd be surprised how much that attitude helps. Because remember, all the pressure is on the higher rated player. All right. And I spoke about that a little bit earlier uh, when I played my lower rated opponents. All the pressure is on the higher rated player. The higher rated player is basically thinking, oh man, I don't want to lose this game. You know, I'm going to lose a ton of points. And if you're stubborn and you play well, there's a good chance as happened in the game I'm going to tell you about now that your opponent will become somewhat frustrated and stubborn and start to force things. All right. But don't just assume because your opponent is higher rated that every move is like this amazing, like precedent setting, you know, move that's going to like crush your position. They make mistakes like everybody else. So you need to play your best game. But like I said, I enjoy playing higher rated opponents because I know I'm going to get a good game out of it. I'm going to get a good game to study. And as far as my rating, I'm covered because I can get points if I win and I draw, as I said. And if I lose, I'm not going to take much of a hit. So it's it's good stuff. So my opponent played the Dutch defense in this game. So I was white. As you know, I play my London system. That's a whole nother uh, discussion. I'm going to be doing a whole episode just on that opening. I won't say more about that now, but I do use the London for my complete opening repertoire as white. And I played D4. And then he actually played E6. Then I played Bishop F4. And then he played F5, which is the Dutch. Okay. Now, I like the Dutch defense against the London system. It plays very well. So he's trying to control E4. And of course, with the London, you're controlling E5. But with the Dutch defense, because of that early F5 move, his H5, E8 diagonal pointing to the king is a little weak. And, you know, the A1, H8 diagonal two on the dark squares there, that can also be weak. So it can create some weak squares. But regardless of that, 
it's a nice opening against the London. The London plays very well against that. I mean, the London plays well against everything, but against the Dutch, I really like it. So we get this opening and I'm doing well. He starts to get a little impatient and that happens. And what he did was he had moved his queen on the same file as my king and he pushed his G pawn. So he's looking for kind of a pawn storm on the king side to attack. And when that happens, what a lot of players do is they start to freak out and they make these unnecessary defensive moves that actually weaken your position. Just because your opponent's queen is on the same file as your king, it doesn't mean it can really do anything. So you kind of have to look at actual lines. And I played well, I defended, and then what happened was, and this is a key theme against higher-rated opponents, he started to get impatient, and he pushed his pawn to g3. So basically, he pushes a pawn, and it's a sacrifice. Now, the idea is he wants to open lines against my king, and you may have heard that, right? It's okay to sacrifice a pawn if it opens a file to your opponent's king. But he played it kind of thoughtlessly, and I really took my time, and I realized all it does is lose a pawn because there's no follow-up. And in fact, I ended up winning a pawn and getting the better end game position. So I had to analyze a lot, but after the trades, okay, I'm just looking at it now in chess base, I end up with a better end game and I'm up a pawn. And now we get into some psychological stuff and some things about draw offers and higher rated opponents. So we're playing this end game. It's minor pieces, rook and pawn. Okay. So I have two doubled pawns on, you know, doubled isolated pawns on the G file, but I'm up a pawn, but he really can't take advantage of it. Everything's covered. He has the two bishops, but again, you know how I feel about the two bishops. That's like so overrated. Oh, I have the two bishops. I have an advantage. Yeah, not not really. Um, <laughs> not not at this level anyway. All right, the, the, you know the the two bishops. It's it's like you know dessert. You know it's nice, but it's it's not always necessary. So anyhow, I have compensation. So we play this end game, and then the classic situation happens where I'm in time pressure now against my higher rated opponent and he makes a little bit of an inaccuracy and he offers a draw. All right. Now, generally speaking, you probably know this without me saying it. When a higher rated player offers a lower rated player a draw, what he's basically saying is, I think there's a chance I may lose the game. You're playing well. I'm going to take the draw because I don't want to lose. And I kind of knew that. And I was looking at some lines, but now you have to factor in a lot of things because even though you feel you're winning, there were a couple of things going on. First of all, it was the end of the night. I was very tired. I was getting a little bit of a headache and I know that I'm not good in time pressure. Like you have to know what your weaknesses are. I do not play well in time pressure and especially in an ending with like minor pieces, rooks and pawns where you got to do some calculation. It's just, it's hard to do that when you're running low on time. So I said, even though I'm, I'm quote unquote better, 
it's not to the point where, you know, I'm up, like I'm up a piece and I know exactly what to play. He still has a lot of play. It's still very tricky. I happen to know he's also very tenacious. Now, if he were the type of opponent who blundered late, or if there was some other idiosyncrasy about him that, you know, might make me want to continue, I would, but I had to make some decisions. Now, another night, if I were really feeling it, I would still play because even though we're playing with a five second delay, that's still, you know, you know, it's, if you're low on time, it's still tricky. So I thought about this and I decided to take the draw. Another night I would have played on, but this is what I was talking about earlier. You have draw odds. So I knew if I take the draw, that's a great result against a higher rated opponent. And I get, you know, a decent amount of rating points. And I'm happy with the result, but I, if I, you know, decline the draw and end up losing, that's like, oh, that's like the worst feel. Like it's, oh, why didn't I take the draw? Like, I hate that. And especially against a higher rated opponent. Okay. So I thought about it and I took the draw because basically I didn't trust myself to play accurately against a very tenacious player in time pressure. So I made a call. You know, another person would have played on and probably another night I might have played on, but I was just going by how I was feeling and the whole situation. And, you know, going back, it was the right call. You know, like I said, I was getting tired, fighting a little bit of a headache. It was, it it made sense because if I had played on and then blundered, it just would have been, you know, you got to go by the situation. It's very situationally dependent. You can't, have it as a black and white thing. Well, I'm I'm always going to take a draw in this situation and I'm always going to decline the draw in that situation. You can't do that because it's context dependent. So I decided to take the draw and, you know, he even said after he goes, yeah, he goes, I made a mistake with that, but you know, I I just don't want to chance it because I don't like getting into time scrambles. So to wrap this all up, these were three games that I played. We looked at a win against a lower rated. We looked at a loss against the lower rated and a draw against the higher rated. In future episodes, I may just look at one game or just one or two games. These will probably be shorter episodes, but just to kick it off, I wanted to look at three games. So that was my first game analysis. Hopefully you liked this episode. I do plan on doing more of these. And as I said, the nice thing about looking at actual games It's a springboard for other topics. So as always, I really appreciate you listening, and I hope you win your next game. Have a great day.